Welcome to Quality. This is Arjun Venkatesh, your host, where we're exploring quality and emergency care. Today, I'm joined by my partner in crime in the Emergency Quality Network Stroke Initiative, Dr. Corey Zacherson. And we've got a special guest, Dr. Tracy Madsen, who's an emergency physician and a nationally recognized stroke researcher at Brown University in Rhode Island. We're going to be talking about a lot of hot topics in TIA care. And Tracy, it's awesome to have you today. I'm actually going to kick us off with a really, really sort of uh, what has seems like a maybe controversial question or not, which is I saw a new guideline came out uh, from the AHA on TIA care. What should emergency physicians know about it? And is there anything that you think is really important uh, for people to think about in their practice? Sure. So there are several areas for emergency physicians to take home from this scientific statement from the AHA really pertains to the identification of TIA and the emergency department understanding that these are high risk events, understanding the diagnostic workup needed, um, and then of course, how to help patients manage their risk factors. Those are kind of the four um, big buckets that physicians can take away from the scientific statement. And the other thing that we really wanted people to be able to take away from this statement in particular, and I think really in contrast to some of the previous TIA statements that have been published, is that these things can be accomplished in a variety of ways. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution to managing TIA patients. We realize that resources vary widely across settings and across EDs, and so um, we make some suggestions for different ways to incorporate the diagnostic strategies. Yeah, I really appreciated that. I did notice, though, that it feels like there's a pretty strong recommendation for MRI within 24 hours. And so that being something that we know there's going to be variation between EDs and how easy that is to meet. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, you know, was there any discuss, how did, how did the group think about that and approach that recommendation? Sure. So first I do have to emphasize that this is a statement and not a guideline, but we had a lot of extensive discussion about the timing of MRI, because this is really important for smaller EDs and EDs where MRIs is not available 24 seven, it really affects the disposition decision, whether or not to admit someone, whether or not to transfer them to another ED with MRI capabilities or whether to, whether they can maybe go home and get an MRI as an outpatient. And so we had an extensive discussion about this as a writing group. Um, and we also realize that this is not, we agree that this is not universal practice. We know that this isn't always happening. Um, I think some of the data that we're seeing from the EQUAL initiative um, do suggest, however, that a lot of patients are still being admitted for MRI and still being admitted either to an inpatient service or to a TIA unit, like a rapid kind of observation unit type protocol, suggesting that in many cases, this is probably still happening. Um, ultimately, after lots of discussion with the, the writing group, the suggestion that an MRI be performed within 24 hours was based on data that demonstrate that if you find an infarct on DWI imaging, it really puts the patient in a different bucket. It puts them in a higher risk group. And that's important. Being able to accurately risk stratify our TIA patients um, helps us understand the diagnosis. It helps us counsel the patients. And really, it helps us better understand their future risks so we can more adequately manage risk factors. Um, and then the final thing about getting a, a prompt MRI, and whether that's 24 hours or 48 hours, getting it as soon as possible, MRI is needed to really make the, the diagnosis. So we use the tissue-based 
diagnosis of TIA. That's the most widely accepted definition at this point. Although we also know that the definition of TIA has evolved over time and will likely continue to evolve. Um, but at this point, we really need an MRI to distinguish between the diagnosis of stroke and TIA. That's a big deal, Tracy, because I think, you know, we've, particularly as emergency physicians, sort of faced two challenges in this always. The first is that we have to make a diagnosis earlier than the time allows, right? We're used to seeing a patient for the average ED visit in this country for around three and a half to four hours. And we may admit that patient to observation, admit him to hospital or discharge, and that's the time, moment in time, when we put the TIA diagnosis down. And it's hard because the historical definition that said, okay, symptoms that resolved in 24 hours never aligned with that. Now with this sort of shifting towards the MRI-based def definition, how do you think emergency physicians should sort of practice and wrestle with sort of the realities of these sort of moments that happen in emergency care, right? That you initially see somebody, you have an initial evaluation, you have a disposition time, and then you're trying to wrestle with what to do about the diagnosis. Sure. I think we we all know those challenges and we know the importance of rapid um, and expedient disposition in the emergency department. Um, but I really think that the field is evolving to the place that TIA and stroke are really just two ends of the same spectrum. And so ultimately, we're going to be treating these diagnoses very similarly. Um, and MRI is part of the diagnosis of stroke. And so in order to make that diagnosis, um, you have to have some consideration of obtaining that test in a timely fashion. And just to be sort of explicitly clear about it for our listeners, you mentioned um, the change in the definition of TIA. And I think, you know, for those of us who are in the stroke world, like that's very familiar to us for, you know, I'm thinking about what I learned in medical school. And if I weren't researching stroke, what I would potentially still think about with TIA. So could you just clarify exactly what the new defi definition is and how that changed? Sure. So there have been evolving definitions over time. The first kind of classic definition of TIA is a time-based definition, and that's something um, so the symptoms come on, they resolve within 24 hours, the patient is back to baseline, um, we suspect a TIA. That's kind of the classic TIA definition. And honestly, that's often the easier one to use. When we say we suspect a TIA in the emergency department, um, I think that we're often referring to that definition, especially before we have definitive MR imaging. Um, the newer definition, which was actually has been around for some time, came out in the AHA statement from 2009, is more of a tissue-based definition. So that basically distinguishes a TIA from a stroke based on whether or not there's an infarct on DWI imaging, um, with the suggestion that once you see the infarct on imaging, you then talk about the, um, you change the diagnosis to stroke and you manage it um, as such. Again, there's a lot of chatter in the field though that this definition is gonna continue to change um, with the idea that these are all part of the same condition. These are all part of the same disease spectrum and that they should be managed very similarly. Yeah, I mean, if you think about MIs actually, it's interesting, right? We are very aggressive with STEMIs who often have an absence of or very early biomarker elevation. Often, you know, we don't wait for the troponin uh, in terms of management of the STEMI patient or give it time. And in that way, it almost sort of flips the way that we are thinking about ischemia in the brain, if you make the parallel. That's a great point. And I think no one would argue about the fact that we get MRIs for stroke patients. And so putting TIA patients in a completely separate bucket and kind of debating over whether or not they 
they need an MRI, I think that I, I think it doesn't make as much sense if we really understand that it is a type of stroke. So, Trace, I got to ask you, you were uh, one of probably a couple emergency physicians on that statement that's mostly made up of neurologists. Um, you know, I think we all have different local experiences on sort of different degrees of collaboration with neurology. And one of the things we've learned from the Equal Stroke Initiative has been that in EDs where there's a lot of collaboration, not just between emergency medicine and neurology, but often there's a hospital support services, things like that, the hospital quality team, um, they're more successful at implementation. What did that interaction feel like in the writing group? And what were some of the surprising either tensions or um, easy understandings that you found between emergency medicine and neurology? Sure. So I will I will say that it really felt like an honor to be one of the emergency medicine physicians on the on the team writing this paper. Um, the others were Dr. Charles Weira and then Pete Panagos was on the, the paper as well. Um, but it really was an interesting kind of juxtaposition, thinking about what happens in the emergency department and really trying to help our um, physician colleagues from vascular neurology, from radiology, nursing leaders that were on the paper. I felt that it was important to really help those people understand what it's like to work in the emergency department, what it's like to diagnose TIA in the emergency department, and what are the challenges to that um, to the diagnosis and to the management of these patients. Um, one of the big ones that I think that we um, uniquely as emergency physicians know is about the broad differential diagnosis that we have to consider for these patients. So that they don't come in the door saying that they've had a TIA or that um, that, that diagnosis is really clear, but it's often very unclear at the beginning, especially because TIA is a condition where the symptoms have already resolved before they come to our doors or before we evaluate them in the, in the treatment room. Um, other physicians, I think, should understand that there's a broad differential, that there's a lot of diagnostic uncertainty around TIA, and that adds to the challenges of choosing which patients need to go down this pathway in terms of getting advanced imaging, whether it's vessel imaging or MRI of the brain. And so that was really important to, I think, communicate with the others on the team. The other, I think, areas of, um, of discussion with the, with the physicians from other specialties were thinking about that the level of resources really does vary widely in different EDs. And, the, and many EDs, um, these diagnostic modalities are not available 24 seven. So thinking about things like carotid Doppler, like why can't you get an echo 24 seven? Why can't you get transcranial Doppler if that's what's indicated? But really making people understand that these um, tests are often not available on the weekend. They're not available on holidays. They're not avail available in evenings. And so how do we change our management? How do we make sure that the patients still go get what they need in a system where things are not available 24 seven. And on the topic of those like resource differences, you know, we we're talking about, there will be places that get an MRI for all these patients just sort of reflexively and not even have to worry about it. And there are other places that are going to have to think about who they're admitting for the MRI, who they're sending home for MRI within 24 or 48 hours or whatever it is. And so, um, Th those risk stratification scores that you got, that you all outlined in the table in the guideline, I thought were, helpful in thinking about that. I wonder if you could just for our listeners sort of talk through those and if there's any that are particularly favored or, or how you would recommend um, approaching that. Sure. I tend to consider most, frequent, uh, most frequently the ABCD2 score. 
Um, it's been around for a while, lots of studies on it. Um, although we have to consider with any of these risk um, stratification tools that there are major limitations. And so in that way, we really have to, if we're going to use these in our decision-making, whether um, whether it's diagnostic or disposition, whether uh, maybe we're using the score to help us determine whether or not a patient can go home versus coming into the hospital, we have to understand that they have limitations and they have to be combined with other information. So our clinical judgment and of course, the other kind of big piece of information that has to be incorporated, especially if you're using the two risk stratification tools that are on the left um, left hand side of the table is imaging. So some of the risk stratification tools include imaging findings from MRI or vessel imaging, and then the ABCD2 score, for example, does not include any imaging data. And so that really needs to be incorporated um, in some way. And so I think it can really give us a sense for kind of the bucket that the patient might fit in, in terms of their level of risk for future events or for recurrent events. So I think they can be helpful. You have to really combine them with your clinical judgment though. And then the other point that I'll make is that I think the, the risk stratification tools can be very helpful in determining who we're going to send home on the dual antiplatelet therapy. So who we're going to add um, clopidogrel to their regimen in addition to aspirin versus just sending someone on aspirin. Um, Let's talk so about that, that is for one, a second. Sure. Yeah, because I think that's, this is a place that is new to most emergency physicians. You know, I think we historically in this space often thought of our role largely on the diagnostic side of the equation. So it's, is this patient having a stroke? Is this a TIA? And that was where we stressed and fretted about it. But particularly with the advent of ED observation care, more rapid access to the imaging technologies, better probably science and research around what the right sort of risk stratification tools are and prognostication tools are, um, we're now more engaged in and we're a key part of the entirety of that mm -hmm. care. And particularly in a world where there's less and less access to outpatient care, a lot of clinics have closed, there's fewer and fewer neurologists in many communities, There's it's impossible to follow up with the primary care, more and more that falls on the ED. And so I can imagine a lot of emergency physicians sort of feeling uncomfortable with the idea of sending a patient out from the ED on dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, what would you say to them? Like, is this like, how safe is this? How, like, how much evidence is there to back this up? Um, you know, how much should this be sort of bread and butter emergency care? This is something that I went through in our own center when we integrated dual antiplatelet therapy into the um, TIA unit protocol for our TIA patients. And so it was kind of a multi-step process, one of which is educating emergency physicians about the need for dual antiplatelet therapy in a subset of TIA patients and really ensuring that they're aware that the evidence is there and that we've seen multiple recent trials um, demonstrating that the evidence is there for sending high-risk TIA patients on two antiplatelet agents when they leave. And so we have to be comfortable, I think, as emergency physicians, understanding that literature and being able to decide when a patient falls into that group and when DAPT um, is indicated. And I think that is a change in prior practice. There may be sites where the neurologist can advise on this before we send someone home on dual antiplatelet therapy, but I think there are a lot of situations where we have to make this decision and we have to be comfortable um, prescribing the medications um, in the in the in the patients that um, in which it's indicated. So higher risk, you can um, I would advise um, like an ABCD two score of at least four. 
um, no evidence of bleeding, no other contraindications. The process really isn't too complicated. And I think that we as emergency physicians are definitely capable in doing that. Um, one of the things I really tried to do as an emergency physician on this statement was to ensure that the suggestions we were making were in fact feasible for emergency physicians. I think this is feasible for us as a group. Um, there are other maybe more complicated medication regimens, um, like for example, looking for clopidogrel non-responders. That's been um, a hot topic in the literature lately. That I think might be beyond the scope um, of our specialty a bit, but I think um, starting someone on aspirin and clopidogrel as part of a protocol that's been well-developed um, is certainly within our wheelhouse. Yeah, I agree. And that's a helpful way to sort of think about it too. I appreciate you um, sort of talking through that. As you guys were both mentioning, it is kind of a paradigm shift for us. Are there any sort of pieces of this statement that you think would potentially be paradigm shifting for our field or for the way that we're thinking about or addressing TIA and the ED? Sure. I think the other point that might be paradigm shifting for many sites or for some sites is the use of vascular imaging on all of these patients. Um, we've seen trends over time that the use of CTA or utilization of CTA for suspected TIA patients um, has really dramatically increased, but I still don't know that it's universally done. I don't think that it is. Um, and so this is I think a big deal, a big suggestion to suggest that all these patients need vascular imaging. Um, we have to think, of course, about resource utilization and cost and time in the emergency department. Um, but that was a pretty, I mean, that in terms of like thinking about discussions with the white, the writing group on this statement, that was like kind of consensus across all the specialty groups represented that um, vascular imaging um, was really important. And not even just, I'll point out that we suggest not even just vascular imaging of the neck, which I think is pretty well accepted that we need to do carotid studies to identify large or severe stenoses. Um, but we also need to consider obtaining intracranial um, vascular imaging because that can also put patients at much higher risk for future events. Tracy, thank you. That's really helpful. You know, I think this whole idea of really rethinking the paradigm around TIA and stroke care is important. I'm really struck by sort of what you said earlier, which is that in some ways, this is a little bit of an artificial distinction that either used to historically be this artificial time-based distinction and is now maybe an MRI or tissue-based sort of distinction, but really it is in many ways a spectrum of a disease. And it just happens to be the time at which we do that MRI and either catch something or don't catch something. And as we start to think about it as one sort of broader disease entity, I think that's going to change the research we see coming out. It's going to change our practice. Everything that's happening in healthcare right now is really pushing towards us and the ED being the acute diagnostic center and the acute treatment center uh, in these cases. And from what I'm learning from you today, especially is, you know, some of our interventions can have real big long-term impacts for patients, starting the dual antiplatelet therapy, things along those lines. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, the scientific statement paper that we've been talking about today will be in the show notes uh, for our listeners. Uh, we're going to be sure to have Tracy back for a future podcast. Uh, this is one of many in our stroke series as part of the Emergency Quality Network. And so thank you, Tracy, and thank you, Corey, for joining us today. Thanks for having me.